0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of High Low with Emrata. And today I wanted to talk about beauty pageants, drag queens, and everything in between. Both are pretty fascinating subjects on their own. And I think the idea of comparing and contrasting drag culture and beauty pageant culture is just interesting. Where do they cross over? Where are they different? Drag has come up um, a couple times on the show. People have talked about RuPaul's Drag Race and, like, how much they love it. I actually met um, at the Jacques Mew show last week uh, Simone, who um, won season 13 RuPaul's Drag Race, who, if you haven't seen, I really recommend seeing the look for the hair. It was incredible. Simone just looked absolutely amazing at Jacques So and was lovely to talk to. I was like, I want to be your friend. And I obviously am very interested in the idea of performance as it pertains to gender and beauty standards and how we perform masculinity and femininity and the way that we do these with these literal pageants right now. There's so much conversation. We've talked about it with Elliot Page um, on the podcast around trans rights and, you know, just – How many politicians and protesters are rallying against drag story hours and just this type of performance that challenges and subverts gender norms. So I just felt like it was topical. So this week, I actually decided to just have a conversation with an expert She is a professor of anthropology at Stockton University in New Jersey, where she has taught since 1986 and author of the book, Drag Queens and Beauty Queens, Contesting Femininity in the World's Playground. She is also the founder and chair of the LGBTQ Youth Safe Space Initiative at Stockton University. I chat with Professor Lori Green right after this break. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. So, on the topic of both drag and beauty pageants, we have special guest Professor Lori Green, the author of Drag Queens and Beauty Queens Contesting Femininity in the World's Playground. I'm so excited you're here, Lori. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We're really excited to have you. It's an honor to have you um, actually as our first expert on Emrata Ask. So can you tell us a little bit about your book and what inspired you to write this book? Thank you very much
1: for having me. Well, Drag Queens and Beauty Queens is a, on the surface, a, a comparison between the iconic Miss America pageant and a spoof of it that's a drag spoof made in Atlantic City called the Miss America pageant. But what it's really about is the idea of performing femininity and gender and also the idea of place and the way that place shapes a culture and the people that live there. And it struck me as interesting that no one had ever seen sort of a connection between these two pageants and that it was such an obvious and fun thing to write about, an interesting thing to write about. It's called the Missed America Pageant because the... um, Idea was or the spoof was that these queen these women were all going to compete in the pageant But for some reason they missed it and why they missed it was the theme of the missed America pageant that year so one year for example It was because they were all on the Titanic and the Titanic went down and then all of the skits that they did and the performances were all about like the funny things that happened that led to the Titanic going down, so they missed the pageant. So that's why it's called the Missed America pageant. And obviously it's it's an homage to Miss America, right? So that's why the Miss it's called Miss to begin with. My main argument I would guess for the for the book is one that that place is an important feature in understanding a culture and a system of behavior. So, for example, we can think about drag as being the same everywhere, but it's really not. And a place has so much to do with the kind of drag that you see there. That's one thing. The the second thing I think I was interested in is what was really the difference or the similarities between a cisgender beauty pageant and a drag pageant. And of course, the drag pageants didn't start till after Stonewall. That's really when they, they first started. And so I was wondering, you know, what kinds of what kinds of similarities we would see
0: between the two. The topic of camp is um, obviously very big part of the fashion world and even Gen Z is talking about it all the time. Um, Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp, which I ended up reading, inspired the Met Gala theme um, in 2019. What are camp sensibilities and drag performance and the origin of camp in drag?
1: Wow. Camp is so hard to define. And uh, Sontag points that out as well. I would say that, first of all, camp to me is a decidedly gay male sensibility. I don't think that we can really talk about camp without and separating it from gay male sensibility. To me, camp is about, it has so many functions, but what its character certainly is about irony. It's about humor, it's about critique through irony and humor. And what camp really does is look at the hypocrisy of heteronormative culture, in particular heteronormative family and the patriarchal structure of it, and it makes fun of it uh, through parody. The interesting thing about camp to me is something isn't camp without an audience. So I can watch a really bad movie on TV by myself um, because I'm bored, but that's not campy. It's not campy till I tell somebody, oh, you know, Charlton Heston was awesome in that movie. Then it's camp, right? So it needs an audience just like any performance, and it is absolutely meant to be a funny social critique. Having said that, it has very serious functions, and there's a myriad of them. So, for example, one of the important functions of camp is a way for gay men um, to cope with the struggles they have in heteronormative society, right? So they have to go around um, acting a certain way, um, being careful, protecting themselves. It's hard. It's a hard life for many people, and, and camp makes adds a little bit of humor, makes light of it, and it's a way of coping or laughing at their problems to make light of them. Um, In a simple sense, it's fun. I mean, many, many people you ask about, why is it campy? Why do you like it? It's meant to bring joy. You know, it's meant to replace the struggle with joy. I think another thing that camp does really well is point out the ironies, just generally ironies that we have in our daily lives. Um, There's others, but I think that those are the main ones that I would focus on in terms of drag, understanding drag.
0: The book really explores the personalities of the pageants. Can you give us kind of a flavor of them? Most of us know what a
1: beauty pageant looks like. Most of us have seen or familiar with the Miss America pageant. So in the Miss America pageant, contestants are all acting out or performing their femininity in the context of a boundary that is structured, right? So they all pretty much look the same. They're all going to pretty much dress the same. They're all going to say mostly the same things. The talent has gotten to be mostly the same. So even though they're trying to stick out as individuals, right, they're doing it in a very bounded arena. It's very different than what happens at a drag pageant. In a drag pageant, they're sticking out as individuals, and they're meaning to push the boundaries or break the boundaries in order to be recognized in that way. So I think that that's one main difference between the two pageants. Um, they all don't look alike on uh, deliberately, right? Right they valorize things like unusual bodies or fat bodies or unattractive bodies. And then some of them are very attractive, and that's what they're going to be presenting. But there's a whole lot more freedom and creativity um, in how they present themselves in the contestation in there. I think um, one of the things that's really interesting to me and one of the points that I do make in the book is that I don't really believe that drag is about femininity at all. I think it's an absolute critique of masculinity and the way that the narrow boundaries for performing masculinity are seen in our culture. And they do that with um, using the female body as the stage to contest that. So they'll display all the freedom that they have in a female body. They'll tell me things like, well, I don't understand why the Miss America contestants don't like change their hair for every number. (laughs) Because maybe I want to make my hair match my dress they see them as lacking the ability to be creative. They don't see them as lacking creativity. They feel the pageant system doesn't let them be creative, where they're given, let's say, a topic, and they get to see, what am I going to do with this? You know, I can have um, a big breastplate in one scene, and then I can have, you know, as they'll say, chicken nuggets in the next, and it doesn't matter. It's part of the, the fun of doing drag, is being able to absolutely curate the femininity you're performing, instead of having it curated at least somewhat for you. I can change up everything. And that's just not what you're seeing in a cisgender beauty pageant. So I think that those are are two of the differences. I think another difference has to do with uh, intersectional things like race and gender. When you go to a drag pageant, those things are performed. So you'll see black drag queens, for example, are always going to perform black artists I remember when Vanessa Williams, the first black Miss America to win, she performed as her talent the song Anything Goes, you know, which anybody could sing. It's a completely toast show tune. But you'll never see that happen in a drag pageant. A, a black drag queen is going to be doing Whitney Houston or, or one of their other female black icons or divas that they admire. And so race is played out, class is often played out, um, or made light of, made fun of. Um, there's a lot of reading of themselves and these are the kinds of things that you just don't see in a cisgender pageant just the way they describe little boobs <laughs> you know is they could have like big cutlets or chicken nuggets and they'll they'll change those up for every number you know they'll look different in every number and it, it's part of the the fun of doing drag is being able to absolutely curate the femininity you're performing instead of having it
0: curated at least somewhat for you how are the bodies of the participants policed
1: Yeah. So one of the ways that you know that um, the Miss America pageant is about bodies, despite their protestations about this and women's bodies, is the way that they are policed. There are about 15 different rules, first of all, about their behaviors, the things that they can do and cannot do. Um, And they all have to do with them being, you know, upstanding citizens, uh, women that, you know, are wholesome and pure and Um, You know, again, ideal Midwestern sort of values for women. Um, For example, they have hostesses that are volunteers from Atlantic City and they also have people that travel with them and their job is basically to make sure they don't do anything wrong. They're not allowed to take phone calls or meet any men, including their father or brothers. Um, they don't answer the door. That's done by the hostess. They're you know they're, they're all their behaviors are policed. But their bodies are as well. So, for example, they can't have tattoos. They can't ever have been married. They could' never have been pregnant. They couldn't have ever have had a child, even adopted child. They're not allowed to get engaged um, until after they're contesting uh, pageantry. And when they do something, for example, like when they used to do the uh, swimsuit competition, they would literally have a tape measure that would say how much bathing suit, how much skin can be showing. Things were glued on their bodies. Um, They were not allowed to consume alcohol or drugs. I mean, basically a complete policing of their, their physical bodies and how their physical bodies move around in space. When, I remember when the casinos came into Atlantic City, they, they added casinos as things they couldn't do because the committee decided that those were things that Miss America contestants shouldn't be seen around, would be something like the slot machines and a
0: seedy activity like gambling. Some of the rules are just incredible. Can you talk a little bit about the queering of the Miss America pageant?
1: Yeah. Wow. You know, uh, what I really write is restorative history. So what a restorative history is usually is history of marginalized people whose histories are left out. They're not extra history. I, I absolutely hate that idea. They are history. They just haven't been told, right? So one of the things that tends to happen when history is marginalized is the impact that the people, those people have on the culture and the community and history itself is left out. And in this case, um, when things are queered, when the gay community has an impact on the Miss America pageant on Atlantic City, on lots of things in in this case, um, it tends to be straightwashed. You know, it's just removed from history. So um, there's a lot of connection between the Miss America pageant and the Miss America pageant that are aside from the actual contesting of the pageant and the pageantry. First of all, if you're not from Atlantic City, which I'm sure most people who are listening are not, the Miss America pageant was created in Atlantic City. It's been there since 1921 until it moved to Vegas for a few years, and now it's gone in Connecticut, and I don't even honestly know if it's being contested anymore. But Atlantic City feels like it owns the Miss America pageant. If you don't understand the structure of Miss America, it's run by volunteers, everyone that lives in Atlantic City. So, there are families that pass down the jobs of, like, hostess, or the people running the parade, or, you know, helping set up the venue, or... And so there's a very, very strong connection um, to Miss America. So every year, even though the contestants are different, the people that come and run the pageant are the same: the hairdressers, the choreographers, the you know the dressers, the the singing coaches, everybody, the lighting people, and most of those people, honestly, in the business are gay. So there was a strip in in, um, Atlantic City called New York Avenue. It was a four block area which used to be a bigger hub than P-Town, you know, in terms of the number of bars and restaurants and things in this very condensed area. Um, It's not there anymore since the casinos, but it, it had a very storied history and a very brilliant history. And everybody who worked the Miss America pageant, when they were off, they would just come to New York Avenue and party. And it was the same people every year. So this was sort of like their second home. And so there's there's been a lot of connection between the gay community in Atlantic City and the Miss America pageant to begin with. The most astounding example, I think, of queering is the now very famous Show Us Your Shoes Parade. So the Show Us Your Shoes Parade is a parade that happens the night before the Miss America pageant where the contestants parade down the boardwalk sitting in open convertibles. Um, and they're introduced by state alphabetically to the crowds that are cheering along the sides of the boardwalk. Originally this par- in this parade, um, the contestants sat with e- their evening gowns on and their white gloves, and they did little Miss America waves side to side. And they smiled demurely, and they, you know, it was a very tame thing. But when they passed New York Avenue and the boardwalk, where all the drag queens lived in hotels with balconies overlooking it, they would look down and they would see they were wearing no shoes. They just had their socks on or their slippers. And they started reading them from the balcony. And they started screaming, show us your shoes, you know, trying to taunt them and get them unnerved. And they were instructed by, you know, the, the courtiers and the, the people that were helping them. Okay, you're going to go to New York Avenue. They're going to yell at you. You're not going to get unnerved. You're going to be calm. You're going to act like a Miss America. And this thing, because they didn't react, it blew up. We had... Signs, watches, t-shirts, you know, light up banners. Like when they got to New York Avenue, it was an absolute bombardment. And finally, one year, this was in the 1970s, one year, one of the contestants lifted her foot up, her sock up in the air, and everyone went nuts. And since then, they, they couldn't control it. And so the Miss America decided, if we can't beat them, we'll join them. They trademarked the phrase, show us your shoes, limiting the way that the community could use it now renamed it the Show Us Your Shoes Parade, where now the contestants dress up in these campy outfits. They call it a whimsical, they don't call it campy, they say a whimsical display that represents their state. They decorate their shoes, meaning they pimp them out. Rhinestones, I mean, some of them have like spaceships on their shoes, like the Florida one once for Cape Canaveral, like space spaceship on their shoes. And they hold one leg up in the air um, out of their convertible the whole time they ride down the boardwalk. So... That is an absolutely clear example, right, of the queering. Now, if you go to Miss America's website or read any of the hundreds of articles on the Shows Your Shoes Parade that I have some of the quotes from my book, you will never, ever see it explained that gay people or drag queens hanging out of windows or balconies had anything to do with this. It's always what a family-friendly and fun event that children will enjoy. And, you know, somebody, it's it said, we don't really know what happened, but someone from a, a crowd started yelling, show us your shoes, and that's how it was born. So it's a great example of the queering process and also the straightwashing process that we tend to see
0: with marginalized histories. We'll have more with Professor Lori Green right after this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emirata. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome back to High Low with Amrada. How do drag queens and beauty queens contest and challenge traditional notions of femininity?
1: I'm going to try not to be theoretical here. When drag kings and drag queens go up and perform because we know that they're not the gender that they're presenting right it makes us because we we tend to see what they're doing as a performance and it makes us question gender as a real thing or as a performance in total now most people might know i don't know you might know judith butler's idea that all gender is performative in other words there is no such thing as gender the only reason that we have gender is because we continue to perform it and then we move it on to the next generation. We reproduce it as we're producing it. And so there is no feeling like I as a woman wouldn't have a feeling of being a woman that I'd want to play out in any way, shape or form. It's not suggesting that there's no cultural aspect to performing gender. Of course there is. What she's saying is there is no gender. It's all performed. The drag queens and kings that I know and myself included um, would not Would not agree with that. Um, They'll say something, for example, if I ask them, well, what do you think about that idea? They'll say, well, no, that's wrong because when I perform Stasha, for example, that's me. She's in there. I'm just usually not allowed to let her out. She's not everything about me, but she's in there. Or my trans friends will say, well, that doesn't explain why I want to wear a skirt because I was never brought up to wear a skirt. I was brought up to do everything different but I don't want to reproduce it because there's something essential in me. So Butler's idea that there's nothing essential um, is questioned by drag, by drag queens. But I guess what drag does is it makes us ask what is essential and what is performed? And I think that that's maybe the interesting question that we ask ourselves about gender. And and are there just two? Or look at this myriad of things, this myriad of ways that we can perform them. And I, I do think that's the interesting thing that drag makes us ask about gender.
0: This one we've talked a lot about on the show. How would you say drag queens and beauty queens have influenced mainstream pop culture? And how do you think the portrayal of drag queens and beauty queens in the media has evolved over time?
1: Well, I would say in the past, beauty queens were very, um, you know, had a real impact um, on little, what little girls wanted to do when they grew up or what they thought they needed to look like or, you know, who they aspired to be like. I don't think that's true anymore so much, um, although there is a small pageant culture that still exists. I don't think that's as strong as it was when I was a child, like in the 60s, let's say. But nowadays, drag, I mean, drag queens are a huge influence. And that is almost, almost exclusively because of the work of RuPaul and the popularization of his reality show, RuPaul's Drag Race. And I, I can't, Overestimate the impact, I think, of RuPaul internationally on the um, on the importance of drag. I travel over the world, you know, doing different things, teaching, presenting, whatever in my work capacity. And I everybody knows RuPaul when they find out what to do. They're like, oh, do you know RuPaul? I mean, everybody. So um, and that's come with good and with bad. You know, and uh, the queens that you talk to, w- even the ones that have been on RuPaul, because many of the queens that uh, have been in Missed America have been on RuPaul since. And m- many of the queens on RuPaul contest in Miss Amer- Missed America now, you know, so I think one critique they would have of RuPaul or one sadness they have as a result of it, it's not necessarily RuPaul's fault, is that it's homogenized what drag is it's denuded it of its sort of subversive qualities in many ways because it's pop culture now and the definition of pop culture is easily digestible for a mass audience and that is not you know going to be something that's subversive right it takes the, a lot of the edge and subversion out of it it has also made it so that you have a fewer varieties it's narrowed the variety of expression of drag at least in the mainstream So now um, where the, you know, the girls used to be able to, again, go to the thrift store, get a bunch of stuffed animals and records, spend like $5 and make a dress. Now they have to spend like $1,500, $15,000 even preparing for a pageant because the standard is now RuPaul. You know, is that you have to put that much care, that much money, that much polish. And it's also moved much more not to the pageant queens because they tend to, you know, do the bitch edit on the pageant queens in RuPaul. The bitch edit, meaning that they tend to make them look like the bad guys, you know, on RuPaul when they edit it. So it's it's damaged the pageant queens a bit. But it's made it so that the, the contestants are a lot more, they look a lot more like women. They're a lot more polished. Um, although it's changing back again because of this critique, I think it, it um, at least up to about three or four years ago, it took most of the camp out of the presentation. And it was much more about their talent, you know, real talent. Not like so bad; it's good talent, but real talent, as well as the presentation of looking like a woman. You know, the the illusion of that, um, even though it was still over the top. You know, it was about you know looking like you were wearing Gucci or you know making a fabulous costume. It had to be fabulous in that in that polished sort of a way. So I think that those things are things that some of the queens and people that are fans of drag regret. I think the. The positive impact that RuPaul's had is how popular drag is. I mean, it literally is an accepted part of popular culture now. I was on an airplane with um, one of the queens that I um, interview, and we were sitting next to someone, and we were talking, the two of us, and the woman next to him asked, oh, what do you do? And he said, I'm a drag queen. And she didn't flinch. She was like an older woman. She said, oh, that's lovely. Where do you perform? Like, there's like some gray-haired you know, woman from Kentucky, you know what I mean? They, She knew about it. He said, I asked my Alexa now what a drag queen is and she just gives me an answer, like a really good definition. So that shows you how much in the mainstream really drag has gotten and how acceptable it is. And it's considered like a legitimate thing to do, you know, if you're not homophobe or, you know, or one of these people right now who's arguing against drag and you know, being Satanistic or, I don't know, grooming pedophiles or whatever, which of course that's totally untrue. So that's really a great a great thing about it that it's popular now and that there's so many venues for people to enact drag and perform and be able to uh, really make a living off of drag and and that's because of RuPaul.
0: Can you talk a little bit about drag kings and compare you know that culture to drag queens?
1: Yeah. So drag queens and drag kings seem like two sides of the same coin, but they're not exactly the same. So. Drag queens are not pretending, as I said, to be women, right? Uh, Tina Burner famously said to me, I'm six foot six in heels. I'm seven feet tall. With my wig on, I'm eight. Nobody thinks I'm a woman, right? So this is, this is not what they're trying to do. Um, they are overt exaggerations of femininity, almost obscene exaggerations of femininity. But drag kings don't really do the same thing. Um, They're usually acting out more quotidian or everyday presentations of men. And many of the drag kings who perform are very much about, um, many of them are are either um, non-binary, they're questioning their gender identities, or they're trans. And they often use this as a way to feel out their behaviors and their comportment and their presentations. So it's not to say that some drag kings aren't comedy kings, they are, but it's, it's, it's a very different kind of a performance, um, usually in many ways. Whereas most drag queens that aren't already transgender or, or bio queens for that matter, or women doing drag or bio queens, um, they're not, they don't have any intention of being women they're, they don't identify as women. They're drag queens. and when they're not drag queens, they're men, you know, and they identify very strongly as men. So it's a it's a bit of a different kind of a, an animal. The other thing that's interesting is in competitions and and there's a, a famous one in the the Philippines um, where you have drag queens and drag kings competing with each other and like performing with each other. the dynamic is very much in line with our, normative gender roles. So the drag queens are the divas. They don't call them divas and queens for nothing. They're not regular women with regular power. These are women with extraordinary powers that cisgender women don't have. You know, by definition, a diva is a bitchy woman who gets exactly what she wants. And a queen, obviously, has more power than anybody, right? And when they're working with drag kings, they're basically bossing them around. They're, they're, you know, the drag kings are like running for things for them. So what you've done is reproduced the sort of male gender, you know, power, it's still there in the queens, and so is the female gender power in the kings. My queer friends at Atlantic City always says, when I laugh about this, when we see it enacted, she says, well, Laurie, you know, they may be in dresses, but they're still men, you know? And I think that that's a dynamic that you do see when when kings and queens are together. Um, You really don't see drag kings taking on that... um, that sort of a, a power, um, and maybe that's why they're less visible, you know, than, than um, and why transgender men, for that matter, are less visible in our culture than transgender women who are so much more outspoken, and have been so much more influential in, in political change, you know, and things like that, is that um, they still enjoy the power, at least understand the power of men, um, maybe better than, than drag kids do. Just a guess.
0: What would you say... What do you hope readers take away from your book and what kind of impact do you hope it has on the fields of gender studies and pop culture in general?
1: Yeah, marginalized groups are often, um, you know, stereotyped as being all the same. And what I've done in this book and what I hope people take away from it is I'm writing about one particular community in one particular place that's having an experience at one particular time of change. And they're a unique community of people that are very complex and they're different, you know, than other gay people in other places or other drag queens in other places. And I think that if there's one takeaway I'd like people to get from the book is that people are complicated and, you know, I hope people avoid stereotyping gay people and drag queens in general. And instead, you know, you know, take a look at what what gay culture and gay people are about.
0: Well, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your research and insights with us. Um, Drag Queens and Beauty Queens Contesting Feminity and the World's Playground is out now. Wherever you can get your books, I highly recommend it. If you enjoyed this conversation, go show some support and pick up a coffee. You're welcome. I think Professor Lori Green has such an interesting perspective and knowledge around so many topics. I found obviously you know the way she talked about the straightwashing and queering of beauty pageants really fascinated me, and was kind of the crux of what I was getting to and was interested in this subject. You know the ways that we take from queer culture and camp and turn it into something else um, is really fascinating. I thought the policing the bodies and how, you know, even these pageants, now that they've kind of moved away from, oh, it's not about these bodies, it's whatever, how much these contestants really are policed was fascinating. And, you know, just in general, learning so much about the difference between drag queens, drag kings, and the culture and and, uh, world around this and how you know, we really, um, how much it permeates all these things and performing of genders and yet we don't acknowledge it. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing from all of you. There's a lot of more things that we can talk about that I felt were very fascinating. So as always go to Hilo.fm or call in 42 Hilo for the hotline to submit your voice notes. We'll use those for next week's talk back, but thank you all for listening. I, Low with Imrata is a Sony Music Entertainment and Bitch Era Media production. Our executive producers are me, Emily Radikowski, Matt Raz, and Sarita Wesley. Our showrunner is Matt Raz. Our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh.